calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Hi there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. We'll be kicking off today's episode with our usual Books with Hook segment, after which we'll go to today's guest. Hello, podcast listeners. It's Carly here. I want to talk to you about Lefty Obey's writing podcast. Lefty is a writer just like you. She's working on her debut that she'll soon query in the hopes of getting an agent and a book deal. In her podcast, she shares her writing journey as well as tips, tricks, and mindset shifts that are helping her along the way, all to help and inspire you to pursue your own writing dreams. If that sounds interesting to you, go check out Lefty Obey's Writing Podcast. That's Lefty Obey's Writing Podcast. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another Books with Hooks segment. If you're thinking, where's Bianca? Please know that she is currently enjoying her book tour. And speaking of book tour, have you secured your copy of The Witches of Moonshine Manor? If not, please go to your favorite independent bookstore or your local library to grab that copy. And if you've already done that, have you left a review? Please know that if Bianca were here, she would never let me say these things because she's very clear that books with hooks should be about the amazing writers that we are championing so they can find an agent, so they can get amazing book deals. And I am with her. However, books with hooks would not exist without Bianca. And so I am being shameless here and promoting her book. That's what I'm doing. Carly, are you okay with me doing this? Yes, we miss you, Bianca. I hope everybody knows that she's not too cool for school now that she's a Vancouver Sun bestseller. She's a Globe and Mail bestseller. She's a Toronto Star bestseller, but she'll still come hang out with us over on the pod. So we look forward to you again next week, Bianca. Exactly. And Bianca bestseller, hashtag Bianca bestseller should be trending. Just saying. Okay, but let's kick off the Books with Hook segment with the first query letter. Carly, would you read that for us? Hello, Carly. I am thrilled to have the opportunity to submit my manuscript, Trouble Follows, for your consideration. I'm an avid podcast listener and greatly appreciate the time and effort that you, Cece and Bianca, put into advancing the writing community. Complete at 75,000 words, this standalone thriller with serious potential is a mashup of Gossip Girl and Ozark that will appeal to fans of The Girls I've Been by Tess Sharp and the fast-paced thrillers of Karen McManus. Evie has always been taught that her family business is her family's business. So no one is more shocked than her when her parents decide to testify against their business partner, landing them in the witness security program. Yesterday, Evie had everything, a trust fund, a closet full of designer clothes, and a budding relationship with her best friend, who finally realized he wanted more. Today, Evie's name is Collie, and her penthouse is a trailer, and she's actively hiding from the Upper East Side dream life she loves. 
The rules are simple. Ghost on everyone you used to know. Delete all social media and blend in, which isn't exactly her style. Despite her best efforts to lay low, Coley finds herself feuding with the town mean girl, crushing on the star football player and befriending an eclectic girl named Mackenzie with a sketchy ex. But when her new friend's dad goes to jail for a crime he didn't commit, Collie helps in the only way she knows how, laundering the money she needs to bail him out through an intricate carnival game scheme. The deeper the friends get, the more they realize that Mackenzie's dad being in jail wasn't an accident, and that sometimes the bad guys aren't as bad as they seem, and the good guys aren't as good. A quick bend of the rules in the name of friendship never hurt anyone, that is, as long as her old life doesn't catch up with her. After being relocated to Canada from the U.S. for my husband's job, I've decided to leave the corporate world behind and pursue my passion for writing. I spend my days working on my second novel, reading, and consuming every resource possible to sharpen my writing skills. When I'm not in front of a computer, you will likely find me chasing my two rambunctious kids or napping with my two senior dogs. All right, Carly, what did you think of that query letter? All right. So I wanted to know first off whether it was adult or YA. I mean, as as it goes on, we understand obviously that it's YA, but I think I would really spell it out here and make sure it's it's really clear for us. Another thing that I was really thinking when I was reading it was like, this is a total Shit's Creek type of comp, right? I don't know. I feel like there's an opportunity there to comp Shit's Creek. Everybody loves Shit's Creek. Obviously, it's a it's a TV show and not a book, but it was giving me those vibes, which sometimes it's nice to have some multimedia comps in there. The other thing I wanted to know was how, like, where is this new setup? Like, where did they move to? It says they left the Upper East Side, but it never says where they go. And like, we are not also members of this book. So we're allowed to know where she is. Obviously, Witness Protection Program, the people in New York City don't need to know where she is, but we as the reader need to know where she is. So how far is she from New York? All of that sort of stuff I wanted to know. Really, at the end of the day, this query is just too long. It's not that it's not interesting. It's just too long. I also thought that the bit at the end where she starts to kind of get involved in this like carnival game money laundering thing. Came a little bit of out of left field to me because I kind of understood that she didn't know potentially why her family was getting put in witness protection program or she didn't understand why, like what the kind of illegal ramifications were of, of the business partnership of the family business. But now it seems like she knows exactly what's going on and maybe she was a part of it, which makes us much more deep and dark and um, potentially more interesting than I think it was kind of pitched in that first paragraph. So if she has something to do with it or knows more than we think, I think that's very, very important because there's a line that says, as long as her old life doesn't catch up with her, well, what did she do bad in her old life, right? Like, I thought, I was under the understanding it was kind of all the parents, but were the parents covering for the children? Like, there's just so much to this that I feel like we're not getting. And for a query letter to be long and for me still to have a lot of questions, I think there's just a lot of tightening and sharpening that needs to be done here. And it's great to have somebody kind of read it cold, such as myself, right? That doesn't know the book because I'm probably pointing out some things that you being close to the manuscript might not know. But I really think we need to kind of tighten it up and just really, really clear about how sinister, how sinister our main character is. Does she know what's going on? How does she feel about it? What is that kind of character arc is it light to dark or is it dark the whole time which is again all very interesting to me so there's some bits here i think we should cut you know the line about like and sometimes bad guys aren't as bad as they seem and good guys aren't as good i would cut that i just especially because we're we're getting long here and there is so much great plot happening i don't think we need vague stuff like that so overall i think it's pretty strong but i think there's just a couple things missing but also a lot of trimming to do yeah when i first read it i got two truths and a lie 
by Meg Mitchell Moore. I got vibes from that book, but then since it's YA, it wouldn't apply. I definitely would love to know like how involved she was because that changes the whole dynamic. All right, Carly, what did you think of those opening pages? All right, so I'll give her a quick summary and then I'll launch into my my thoughts. So we start off with meeting our main character getting ready for an event and her mother is also getting ready for an event. Their seamstress is there doing some last minute tailoring. She's kind of joking around with her mom. They seem to have a nice relationship and banter. And then we find out that the dad is kind of on his way up to the penthouse. They're texting each other. And then he gets up to the top of the penthouse and he has somebody else with him. It's his business partner or somebody kind of in business and his son, which is her friend. And so her being the teenager and the boy being a teenager, they're kind of like having this great banter, really cute, playful looks kind of romantic and sweet and they're kind of playing around in the penthouse getting ready for their event and they kind of wander into the office space and they see the dad her friend's dad and another man kind of in their office in a very heated conversation one of them is like sweating profusely and we understand that you know they shouldn't have been in there all right so now i will tell you what i thought of my pages so I'll probably just start with a lot of small notes because I didn't really have any big picture notes. I thought it was good. So let me just go through with my small notes. I made a line here about something that, you know, some language that I think should be just adjusted. There's a line here that I thought felt like a little bit cartoonish. You know, I mask my laughter behind my free hand. Like masking our laughter with our hand. I mean, do we really do that in real life? I don't know. I don't really think so. There's another line talking about her not knowing how tall her mom is. She's like, She's tiny, like five feet tops. And I was like, by being a teenager, you know exactly how tall your mom is. I don't know, me, because, you know, you you either like are close to your mom's height or you're not. I don't know. I just feel like I knew as a teenager exactly how tall my parents were. So that just seemed odd to me that she didn't know exactly how tall her mother was. That was something that stood out to me. Another thing that I catch a lot in manuscripts is I care a lot about dialogue. I just, I really love punchy dialogue. So I pay close attention. And when characters are talking to each other, when they say each other's name, it drives me a little crazy because in real life, we don't say like, you know, obviously Cece and I in the podcast, we're like, hey, Cece, what did you think of this? But because we're like queuing each other for the podcast, but in real life, I wouldn't be sitting at a cafe with Cece being like, and so Cece, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So we just don't, that's just not how we talk in real life. So I made some note of like, like when she says mom a lot, um, when she calls her by her first name, it was supposed to be an internal joke, like, oh, it bothers her how much I call her by her name. But I don't know. There was another example where the man says, like, Mr. Barros doesn't even greet me before questioning. Where's your father, Evie? I don't know. Like, when if the person's right in front of you, you just be like, where's your father, right? Like, I don't know. I just don't think we all need all these names in dialogue. That's just kind of, as you can tell, one of my teeny tiny pet peeves. I tend to catch this a lot, but I did really love the banter, as I said, between the two teenagers, the kind of little budding romance, very sweet, very cute, very playful. I thought that was that was really dynamic. So overall, things are happening on this page, right? We're getting ready for an event. We have people coming up the elevator, you know, a lot of drama going on with the business partners and getting ready for a big event. So in terms of multi-layered movement and drama. I think we have a lot going on here. So I do think it's starting in the right place. Always great news to hear that pages are starting in the right place. That's very exciting. Okay. So I will now read a query letter myself. Dear Cece, because of your interest in high concept speculative fiction with a literary feel, and if I recall correctly from the Tease Not Ya retreat, an affinity for stories about spooky twins, I hope you'll enjoy Beyond the Overcast Sky, a work of literary fiction with dystopian, utopian, and cli-fi elements. At 84,000 words, 
this dual timeline novel takes readers on a tour of a familiar yet broken world in the style of Karen Thompson Walker's The Age of Miracles and will appeal to fans of Emily St. John Mendel and Margaret Atwood in a poor Appalachian town on the brink of climate-driven disaster in 2035. Ten-year-old Micah and his twin brother Zeke are inseparable, even in their dreams, which have an eerie habit of coming true. As the storms and fires of the climate crisis spiral out of control, a strange priest arrives who suspects the twins' gift of foresight. When the twins foresee both the fire that consumes their town and the miracle that extinguishes it, permanently dimming the sun and stopping climate change in its tracks, Micah keeps what he saw a secret. Zeke does not. The priest declares Zeke to be the prophet of the newfound Church of the Miracle, and soon the world bows in worship. Micah flees, afraid for his life. Thirty years later, Micah is still in hiding from Zeke's followers, a scavenger surviving on scraps under the permanently overcast sky. But when the clouds part and unleash the sun's fury on the world, he discovers the truth behind the miracle. Micah must race against time through a crumbling Manhattan, across the Atlantic aboard a futuristic ark, and into the heart of an untouched utopian Paris to save his brother and the world from the fanatical priest and his cult hell-bent on engineering Armageddon. Beyond the Overcast Sky is my debut novel. In March 2022, the first chapter of this manuscript placed third in the gutsy Great Novelist Chapter 1 contest. I lived in Asheville, North Carolina with my brilliant wife and our three mischievous cats. Sincerely, Sean David Robinson. Okay, so what did I think of this query letter? First of all, it's so great to read a letter from a member of the Shit No One Tells You About community. Like, obviously, everyone who sends stuff in is a member, but some people I know from Twitter, and it's just really cool to be able to, like, read pages when you quote unquote, know the person, or at least know them a little bit. I think this letter is strong, the beginning and the ending, like the opening paragraph is really strong. And the last paragraph is really strong too. You're right that I adore twin stories, whether spooky or not. I just love anything that has to do with twins because come on, it's great fodder for story twins. I also adore The Age of Miracles. It's one of my favorite novels. It's exactly what I like in terms of sci-fi, fantasy, speculative. It's the change one thing and then we follow strong characters because of that change. I do want to discuss the like the plot paragraphs. There's a line that says Micah flees afraid for his life. I don't understand why Micah is afraid for his life. That was not made clear to me. He had the same prophecy as Zeke. Why why would he be in danger if Zeke wasn't? Same with the line that says, you know, Micah is still in hiding from Zeke's followers. Like, I don't understand why. Like, what is dangerous about that? And discovering the truth behind the miracle, that's pretty vague. Now, I understand that that's a reveal and we don't want to give away the reveal, but could we have a sense of what the thing that he suspects is, for example, or what the specific stakes are? Also, when he discovers the truth behind the miracle, was it through another dream? And does this mean that Micah knows that Zeke saw it too? Are the brothers now enemies? I guess I'm just confused about the characters' relationships. As a global note, which I hope that these micro notes will work in terms of supporting this global note, 
I worry that the query letter is focusing too much on the world building and the dystopian elements and not enough on character. As an exercise, I recommend writing this query letter, not to send it out just for yourself, but without any of the speculative elements. Just pretend that the story is not taking place in a speculative world or pretend that you can't talk about it. So I think that will force you to focus and to flesh out the specifics of character, motivation, conflict between the brothers, et cetera. Because again, I, I should understand a little bit more based on character because that is just, it feels like this should be character driven. I, it feels like because of the comp, that's the goal. And having read the pages, I will have a note in that vein too. But I definitely also want to say that having talked to like several acquisitions editors, but what they want in books and their editing process with the authors that they take on, a lot of people tell me that in the first draft, there's a lot of focus on world building. But then in the second draft, there isn't so much. Like you're able to, to let that fade into the background and focus more on character. And that's something that the editors know because the authors open up to them about the editing process. So just know that this is normal. Know that it's okay to be focusing on the world building for now. But I do think you should flesh out character. Cece, thank you for that query critique. And we're so excited to find out what is in these pages and tell us what you thought of them. Okay, so we have a timestamp, hooray, 2065. And we know that Micah is setting out at dawn and it's August and there's very bitter wind. We know that the orb of the sun is lost behind the bone gray skies as it has been for 30 years since the miracle. The miracle is capitalized. It's a proper name. Micah is by himself. He's walking. He feels like the last man on earth. He hears church bells toll across the city in celebration of the anniversary of the miracle. And then we, he sees a line and it's a line in which government rations are being given one per person. And everyone in line is very quiet because they have no energy. The miracle did stop the world from burning, but it meant that people lost their energy. And so they barely move. They don't speak. And then we have a line break. And as Micah is trekking north, we see the surroundings. We see what used to be a church, the Trinity Church, and is now the Church of Miracle. We see him wading through the crowd. And we see a ceremony taking place, which starts with, bless us, O Lord, on high, which is obviously a a take on a spin on religions as we do them now in this in this dystopian world. So that's that's what happens. Now I don't know if you notice, but based on my description of what happens, I'm more focused on, like I said in the letters, the world, because these pages are focused on the world. I had so much information on the world building, but not enough character interacting in a scene. I would really want to see the protagonist, Micah, with a clear goal, facing an obstacle. I want to really highlight the fact that the writing is great. I just wish the interiority were focused more on the character's unique perspective as opposed to the world's, because it's almost like we're in the world's head, right? And the world is talking about the character, as opposed to being in the character's head and the character is talking about the world. And I wonder if this is the right place to start. It's slower than I hoped with no, again, no power imbalance. And the writing is so great that I would keep on reading, but I still don't think it's starting in the right place. As a really good example of 
why it seems that we're in the world's head and not in Micah's head, take a look at the paragraph that starts with the building itself is a Gothic masterpiece. Like that entire paragraph, there's nothing that indicates that we are grounded in Micah's perspective. But that's just one example. I did highlight others for you and the writer will get this as will all our Kofi subscribers. And you know, when I reached the end, I was thinking to myself, okay, so he's just focused on the world building and that's okay. It's a draft. He'll focus on character later. This is part of the process. And then when I reached the very, very end, I realized what this is reading like, because it was still reading as something I knew, not just the draft. It's reading like a movie treatment. When you write a movie treatment, you focus a lot on, especially for sci-fi, you focus a lot on the world. It's the stuff that writers establish before the story begins so that the B footage can be shot to give the world texture. And this is essential developmental work for your novel. I still don't want to start there since this isn't a movie and we don't want those, those scenes of the camera panning through the decrepit world and lines and rations like we don't that's too slow for a novel's beginning for a tv show for a movie it works because it's so passive you're just looking at the images but when you're reading it requires so much brain power for the reader to imagine that it's easier for us to connect with a person as opposed to a scene so that's my note to you i hope it resonates and thank you so much for sharing all right. Thank you, Cece, for that wonderful bit of feedback. And yes, we are so glad to see longtime fans of the pod sending in their work. We appreciate this community so, so much. So thank you. All right, Carly, can you please read us the second query letter you have? Dear Carly slash guest agent. I am a relatively new but committed listener to the Shit No One Tells You About Writing podcast. Your conversations with Bianca and Cece reignite my love for writing every time I listen to an episode. I may or may not have also choreographed an amateur dance routine with my pup to the show's very catchy opening jingle. I was excited to hear a Books with Hook segment where you shared that you also represent picture books, and I'm writing to query my picture book, fiction manuscript complete at 715 words without back matter. Little Blue Star will appeal to readers who enjoy the humor and poignancy of Goodnight Oppie and the sensitivity of The Boy with Big, Big Feelings. A social-emotional learning SEL picture book, Little Blue Star, features a young star who learns the age-old heartbreaking truth that it's better to have loved and lost than never loved at all. New to his very dark celestial home, Little Blue is relieved when Red Star, a wise companion, offers to give him a tour of the universe. Soon the two become stellar friends embarking on a wonderful spatial adventures. But when Red Star unexpectedly passes, Little Blue has to confront the difficult process of grief and loss. Exploring the importance yet impermanence of friendship, Little Blue Star offers readers and Little Blue an opportunity to learn how darkness can also be an unexpected friend. This steam-inspired story weaves nonfiction elements into the narrative that are explained more fully in the back matter. I'm a brown woman who grew up in Pakistan before coming to the United States for her education. Graduated from Brown University with honors in English and studied literature, religion, and culture at Harvard Divinity School for my master's. Over the years, I've enrolled in several creative writing courses and workshops, including, more recently, courses on children's literature. I wrote Little Blue Star by drawing on my own experiences of loss and grief experiences I know we all share. With Little Blue Star, I hope to give young readers the tools to work through their own experiences of big feelings. I'm an active member of SCBWI, Storyteller Academy, and Julie Headland's 12 by 12, and currently teach writing the non-creative kind to college freshmen at Harvard College. If you are interested, I have several other complete picture book manuscripts I'm also happy to share. Thank you very much for your time and consideration. Sincerely, Sheza A. Atik. Thank you, Carly, for that reading. What did you think of the letter? 
All right. So overall, it is a very sweet, but very dark concept, right? And I am not somebody that shies away from having tough conversations with children, especially since I have two children and have many tough conversations with them, where we are talking about a lot of life and death things often, right? So I think this is appropriate for the age group. But I have found in the past, and I actually, I sold a book called Ella and the Balloons in the Sky about a little girl named Ella and her dog passes away. And the imagery is like her dog being lifted up into the sky with balloons, like off to heaven. It's a very sweet book. But a lot of editors passed on the book. It did sell because it's dark. It's sad. And once a publisher has, and publishing is like this with so many things, right? It's like, oh, we we have our pet death book. You know, we have our this death book. We have our this. And any category, publishing is like that. And this is one of them, right? Where it's like, we might have a book on death or a book on grief. And therefore, there might be many passes for that reason, as opposed to a book that's much more like commercial and fun, where it's like, this is a fun book that everybody might like, right? So do you know what I mean? Like it's, we are targeting a very specific audience here, which I think you know, because this is a, you said this is a book on grief, right? And it is. So that's kind of my my big picture note. One thing I will also say about some of the teaching elements here. So I would take out the social emotional learning part. Do not start with any like educational bit when we're talking in trade publishing. I would keep the STEAM inspired bit at the bottom, but mostly because also because it's at the bottom, but I don't think we need that social emotional learning bit. I think that it's kind of like when we talk on the podcast about pitching novels and telling us their themes. It's like, yes, like we know that we'll get to that. Right. And so we understand that this is a social emotional learning book because it's about deep topics. Right. So to me, that was just a little bit redundant instead of clarifying. But in general, I think it's very cute. I have some notes for you, which you'll see when you get kind of my edits back to you. The part that I thought that was vague is the line, embarking on wonderful spatial adventures. It's just very like, where are we going and why? I kind of thought that was a little bit vague. But overall, I think it's, I think it's really, really well done. I now want to read the pet book because that seems so sweet. And I know I'll cry. But at the same time, I want to. I don't know what that says about me. (laughs) I know. It's like circle of life, right? We're having all these deep feelings on the podcast. Yes. All the deep feelings come to our podcast for deep feelings. Okay. (laughs) So what did you think of the pages? It's interesting because it's a picture book, right? But we didn't get images. So how how did, how was that experience? Yes, that's a good question. So I actually encourage people when they are conceptualizing picture books to have illustrator notes. And that was actually one of my notes for this person is they didn't have any illustrator notes. And there are elements, especially if you're going to get into like some steam stuff where you're like going to be explaining constellations, I would probably have some illustrator notes. So again, you'll see when you get my notes back, I think some some illustrator notes would be really, really helpful here, especially when you talked about constellations. But anyway, first I'll give you a little summary of our book and then we'll get into my notes. So we start with our little star. He kind of like awakes in the sky. He wakes up and he's like, it's it's dark in here. He kind of is just kind of waiting. He's a little star in the dark. And then we hear a voice saying, hello. And this is his friend, Red Star, that he meets. So the friend Red Star says, do you want a tour of the universe? Yes, we do. So we go off and we're meeting different constellations. We're learning about Red Star's favorite planet, which is the planet Earth. So there's that kind of nice moment of like, We can look up at the sky and like pretend these characters are looking down on us. All very sweet. We are talking to some of the stars. He says, you know, Miss Leonidas, you know, have you seen Red Star? Because all of a sudden Red Star goes missing. And we're trying to figure out where Red Star went. 
I think as the reader, we know, but our little blue star does not. So North Star calls out into the distance, little blue, you won't find red star. His time as a star was complete and he had to go out. He says, impossible, red star would never leave. I'm sorry, little one. But sooner or later, our light has to give back to the darkness that lets us live. And so our blue star is very sad, right? He's like, I don't understand. He's kind of like looking up out at the world, the darkness, not understanding. And then North Star says, I want to show you something. And then he introduces Blue Star to the little friend that was on Earth that Red Star was lighting up for. And he says, do you think you could be this girl's star and again, kind of light up for her? And then so they have that little moment. And then it says, on one evening, a soft blue light appears beside little blue. Say, the voice squeaked. It's quite dark in here, isn't it? And so he now is a red star, right? He is a grown star to this new little star that's appearing in the darkness. So we have our like full circle moment. So as you can tell, it's a very sweet, dark concept. I think I just made Cece cry while I was summarizing. This This is why I can't represent picture books i'm too emotional for this stuff it's so sweet now you're making me tear up oh my gosh we're having our full emotional moment over here it is very sad and i've had conversations with my own child like as somebody kind of moves from toddlerhood into childhood they ask a lot of questions about life and death right and anybody that's been a parent through the pandemic we're having lots of talks about life and death and and where people go I'm 38 and I have lots of questions. We all have questions. Well, that's what I tell them. I'm like, I don't know, hon. Like I haven't been there. So right now I'm on earth. So yeah. So I think it's, I think it's really sweet. It's really dark, obviously, but I do really like that we come full circle. And the moment that I think is the darkest, which is the part that I read to you, right? Where he says, where North Star says, I'm sorry, young one, but sooner or later, our light has to give back to the darkness that let us live. And it's very much the kind of same concept of like plants, like decomposing to like create the earth that new flowers can go from, right? It's that kind of thing, which I think is very lovely. That's the darkest part of the story, but it's halfway through. So if a kid is having like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm a scared moment or whatever, you know, we still have the whole second half of the book where we are, we, now we, we have another friend and North Star and um, we're meeting the little girl that he lights up for. So my questions for this book are, there's a lot that goes behind a name and a color, right? So we called this little blue star. Blue is, the color blue is known for being a sad color. The color blue is also known for being a calming color, right? There's a lot of like symbolism and meaning behind colors. So I'm kind of wondering why you chose this star to be blue and why you chose red star to be red. Red is known as like a fiery color, right? An aggressive color, angry color. And so I almost think like our little blue star needs to be like little yellow star. I don't know if you chose little blue star because obviously it rolls off the tongue a little better, but I don't know. I don't know if I'm like thrilled with our color choices here. (laughs) Just as a symbolism moment and red star, again, like sounds a bit angry to me, (laughs) sounds a bit fiery. And so I almost feel like our older star needs to be blue star because that's like our calming star. And then maybe our younger star needs needs to be the different color. Maybe he's red because he's like fiery and young, you know, anyway. So I'm, I'm, I'm putting a lot of meaning into this, but with children's books, we have to put a lot of meaning into to every bit of symbolism here. So I think that is something to think about our color choices here. The other thing, I really liked the fact that he talks to the stars. So again, we're I think what this the back matter she's talking about is like we're going to learn a little bit of constellations. But that's why I think we need illustrator notes. So if you have some questions about picture books, the place I always send people is kid lit. 411.com kidlit411.com has all every single resource under the sun that you could ever possibly need so if you have questions about how to include illustrator notes in your manuscript head over there 
Another thing that might help with Illustrator Notes is you said, so you know how there was like a girl on Earth kind of looking back at the stars. It said, down on Earth was a young girl staring up at the sky. She gazed right into Little Blue's home. And then I was like, home? Did he have a home? I don't, I wasn't picturing a home. And see, this is why Illustrator Notes are helpful because then it's like, I need to know what I, what I need to be picturing or visualizing to really get the full image here. So did he have a home? I kind of just assumed he was a little star floating in space, but now I'm like, oh, was I supposed to visualize a home the whole time? So these are, these are my questions. So those are some things to think about, but I think it's very well done. I think it's dark, but I do think if there is a publisher that doesn't have a grief and loss book that they could be interested in one. Okay, that was a lot. And I have now stopped crying. I was actually tearing up so that I can read the next query letter. I can do this. Okay. Please it's funny that on. the picture book ones are ones that make us cry and the adult ones were like all the blood, death, murder. <laughs> all our inner children are just <laughs> right now. Okay. Okay, I can do this. Dear Cece, Carly, and Bianca. I am seeking representation for my novel Redacted, a middle-grade contemporary of 48,000 words. I am a huge fan of the podcast and so glad a writer friend recommended it to me. Thank you for your insights into queries. Listening to your comments has helped me immensely. I hope that with your knowledgeable input, I can hook my dream agent. When Molly inherits a house, the door to her true identity unlocks. But to find the answers... Molly must be brave enough to open it and to confront a family history that still haunts a whole town. List-making Molly Aaron's summer bucket list is going to be a breeze this year. Number one, plan her extracurriculars for a stellar freshman year. Medieval History Club, anyone? Number two, have at least 10 sleepovers with BFF Kendall. Number three, never to see, hear, or think about school bully Kyle Barton. Number four, Find a boyfriend for mom. Okay, that last one's a little bit tricky, but it's the single most important item because a new boyfriend is just what mom needs to distract her from her laser sharp focus on Molly. But when an unexpected letter arrives informing Molly that she has inherited her father's family house on Cranberry Lake, the list gets a complete makeover. Number one, Make it 30 days in a mysterious old lake house with a cranky caretaker who'd like nothing better than to keep Molly from inheriting. Number two, solve the mystery surrounding her long dead grandmother in a small town bent on keeping its big secrets. Number three, find her missing father and get answers to questions she's had all her life. Number four, help her estranged BFF through an unexpected divorce. Number five, Win the town boat race with none other than the hopes to be avoided Kyle Barton so that she can, number six, find a boyfriend for mom. Well, maybe not a complete makeover. Molly finds that lists don't offer any answers when dealing with messy human problems. She must confront her own misconceptions and help others to see theirs. If she's going to have a chance to loosen the strings on her tight-knit bond with mom, restore her relationship with Kendall, and find out why her family's history has been buried for decades. The themes in the story of transformational summers, family reconciliation, and acceptance will appeal to readers who enjoyed The Battle of Junk Mountain by Lauren Abbey Greenberg, Hello Universe by Aaron and Trada Kelly, and Midsummer's Mayhem by Rajani LaRocca. I have been writing for and working with children for most of my life and currently teach pre-kindergarten students. My short stories have appeared in print and online. I have also worked for several educational companies writing remedial reading materials. 
My first novel, Into the Lion's Mouth, a middle-grade historical fiction set in Renaissance Venice, debuted in September 2021. Other projects I am involved with include a graphic novel with my illustrator daughter, a middle-grade story with a touch of magical realism, and an adventurous tale about a mouse. More information about these projects is available on my website. I have included the first five pages below. May I send you the full manuscript? Thank you for your time and consideration. I look forward to hearing from you. Yours sincerely, Nancy. Thank you, Cece, for reading that query letter. And now tell us what you think. I have a lot of notes for this one. Okay, so first, I would recommend moving the metadata, the comps, etc. up to the first paragraph. That will give us more of a feel, you know, on your book and also help tighten this letter because that's my really my big picture note. This, this needs to be trimmed. I will say that I love lists in my personal life. I am a big fan of lists, but I don't think that it's the best way to convey a story's plot. It feels like the query letter is just dragging in pace and you never want that. You want a really succinct and punchy query letter to get us excited about reading the, the pages. And I also think that, you know, anything that's experimental, and this is an experimental format in the query letter, is typically high risk. It's possible that an agent will find it really cute and get excited, but it's also possible they'll be like, wait, no, that's not how you write a query letter and be turned off. So I wouldn't risk it. It's obviously up to you. And now in terms of like the story, my first note was, I don't know if this is middle grade. Summer before high school, she seems to have a lot of independence. I'm almost wondering if it's YA. I get that it's on the cusp, right? And I think that to be able to actually give a more informed opinion, I'd need to know more about the story. And unfortunately, I don't. Because even though this does have lists and is long, like I'm just, I'm just not sure because she inherits a house, right? So first of all, she's a child who inherits a house. So how, how is that? How does that work? Like, is her mom, is her mom helping her navigate this process? I assume so, but there's no mention of that. So where's the caretaker element? And there's this cranky caretaker in the house who doesn't want her to inherit. And it's like, wait, like why will he keep the house? If she doesn't, is that a condition like in the will? the mystery of like her long dead grandmother. Like it just, if it felt like that came out of nowhere. Same with like finding the missing father. Like I thought her father died. Like I was just so confused and helping her estranged best friend through the divorce that read as though her best friend was getting divorced. Not that her best friend's parents, which I'm assuming is what happened, was getting a divorce. So I also don't know her age, right? Like I, I have a sense based on the fact that she's about to go into high school, but I would start this with, 12-year-old Molly or 13-year-old Molly or, or whatever it is. All in all, your job, in my opinion, really is to create a tight chain of events. A leads to B, B leads to C, C leads to D. Sometimes B leads to E, that's okay too. But I do need to see how one thing started a chain reaction. And I have to get that sense of dominoes tipping over. Whereas this query letter is making me feel that each thing is coming from a different direction. And I don't see it coming together in a cohesive way based on the letter, which I really wanted it to. So these are my notes for you. Like, it's really sweet. I would just tighten. I would just really, really tighten because I think it needs that. Thank you for that, Cece. All right. So now tell us what exactly is happening in these opening pages. Okay. So we have a timestamp, which reads May 1966. And we have a tiny bit, very short excerpt in italics. 
we're in Kathleen's head. She's saying that the house is part of the problem. And she's saying that she's sore, sore with disappointment, sore with sadness. And we don't get a lot. We hear a voice saying, it's you. And she doesn't respond and she steps inside. So it's you know, very mysterious. We're not really sure what's going on. And it's very short. And then we have a line break. And we have Mrs. Walker, a teacher, leading class through, you know, draw your experiences, write your emotions. And we are in Molly's head. The bell rings. Molly's talking to her best friend, Kendall. They're talking about how they're going into summer and that next year it's going to be high school and that you don't want the person they don't like to be there. And they're excited about the extracurriculars. And eventually, and the person they don't like is called Barton. And eventually they they chat about how high school is going to have tons of people and they don't want to see him anymore. And Molly pulls up a list and talks about how she's looking forward to romance. And Kendall's like, romance? She's like, yes, for my mom, because I want to find my mom a boyfriend. And she's like, what, what? But she uses the word suitors, which is really funny because her friend is like, suitors? Have you been reading Jane Austen again? We have their dialogue, which is really cute and sweet. And it covers essentially what we saw in the query letter about her looking forward to Medieval Club and all that good stuff. And they're talking about the sleepover and we have that cute dialogue between the friends. In terms of notes, in terms of what I thought, like it's a really sweet scene. It's well-written. It's polished. My main note is dialogue. I like the dialogue. I did, however, notice that there wasn't anything left unsaid. I talk about this on the podcast a lot. When a person is speaking to another person, even if they are the world's most honest person, and even if they have a very close relationship with that person where they are truthful, there are things going on in their head that they are not sharing. It's not necessarily dishonesty. A lot of people think that's what I'm talking about, and it can be, but it's not necessarily. She could, for example, be thinking about things that she is, I don't know, kind of embarrassed about, or even things that she hasn't told her friend because she wants to keep her mom's privacy, or things that are she's still processing and she's just not ready to share. It could be so much, and there's really not that interiority here, and I think there should be, because the point of reading a book is being inside someone's head. It's what makes a book different from a movie. And I just really, really wanted that. I also wanted to say that I do love the lists on the pages. Like I know I said to cut in the query letter, but I want to be super clear and say, no, no, no. Like, please keep this on the pages. I don't think they belong in the query letter, but in the pages, they're working really well. I also wanted, as she was talking to her friend, a little bit more big emotions. When you're that age, you're feeling so many emotions. Your emotions, like they're way too big for your body. So I just wanted to really have that sense elevated. And I think that if you just dig into the interiority, that will happen naturally. I did flag the moments in which I felt there was opportunity to dig deeper. Other than dialogue, I will say that I wanted a little bit more active emotions woven into this to make me feel like she's a 13-year-old. Fear, desire conveyed through surprise. One way to convey surprise, for example, because surprise just like elevates anything. Add surprise to pages and your pages will be elevated, I promise. It might be the fact that Kendall pulls the list from her backpack. Like Kendall sees the list poking out and she's like, what's this? Are you making a list again? And she's like, she wasn't ready to share. But at the same time, it's not that big of a deal because it's her friend. So she does have that uncomfortable moment and then she just kind of confesses. So just changing that dynamic as opposed to her volunteering the information just might make us feel more for her. And it might give you an opportunity as the storyteller to just really immerse yourself in her consciousness. So yeah, these are my notes. I hope they're helpful. All right. Thank you, Cece. That's it for today's Books with Hooks. 
I noticed that Carly and I kept saying all right all the time. So if you want to play a coffee drinking game and just take a sip every time we said all right, listen to this episode again, you will be properly caffeinated. <laughs> I feel like we need the Matthew McConaughey from Dazed and Confused. All right, all right, all right, all right. Or however I love he that, says. Yes. <laughs> Okay, Bianca, we miss you. You got to come back. We don't know what we're doing without you. (laughs) Thank you, everyone. Hi, everyone. It's Carly here. I want to tell you about my next webinar that I have coming up. It's called Being an Author on the Internet. Best practices, learning the difference between brand and platform, and how to build your literary community. I'm really excited for this upcoming event. It's on October 12th at 8 p.m. Eastern. You can head over to my website, carlywaters.com, to learn everything about it. It's called Being an Author on the Internet. We'll spend 90 minutes at 8 p.m. on October 12th going over everything you need to know about best practices, building your literary community, and I can't wait to share all of my best tips and tricks. See you there. We just registered my youngest kid for kindergarten. I cannot believe it. One of the tricky things about my kids being in French immersion school and not having French as a language myself is I'm honestly worried about how I'm going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are honestly so lucky, though, to live in a city that's bilingual and we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So I know it's going to be easy for our kids to pick it up. Me, on the other hand, I am worried about me. I grew up somewhere where French class was not taken seriously, and now I have to make up the difference. And that's where Rosetta Stone comes in. As the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app, it really immerses you in the language you want to learn. Rosetta Stone teaches through immersion, which is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're honestly getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language, which is what everybody wants. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio, the audio from native speakers, and then give you feedback on how well you're pronunciating the words so you can really hone those pronunciations. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program because they have been an expert in the language learning field for 30 years and used by millions. Thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language training online. Of all the apps, Rosetta Stone uses the best speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of a native speaker for better feedback to improve. They have a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent, which is built into the program. As you practice speaking, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. The other language learning apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one-month language course. Think about the cost of one-hour private tutoring sessions. With Rosetta Stone, you enjoy lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. We have a special offer for you guys. That's 50% off. That's a lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off. This is a steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the Shit No One Tells You About Writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That We want you guys to go visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. 
If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. Guest is the author of the novels All About Lulu, West of Here, The Revised Fundamentals of Caregiving, This Is Your Life, Harriet Chance, Lawn Boy, and Legends of the North Cascades. He lives with his wife and family in Washington State. It's my pleasure to welcome Jonathan Everson. Jonathan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to chat to you because we have a longtime listener of the podcast called Carmela DeVito, who is one of the most avid readers I've ever come across. And when Carmela tells me I have to pick up a book and I have to interview the author, I obey. And this is what happened in this instance. So hi, Carmela. I know you have been nagging hi, thank me. thank you, Carmela. God love you. <laughs> She's been nagging me saying, when the hell is this episode happening? So I'm glad we can finally make it work. Okay. So for our listeners, I want to give you an indication of the book that we're talking about today and a bit of an overview so that you can have some context of what we're chatting about. So the book Small World opens with a train accident in 2019. The engineer Walter Bergen has had a perfect record up until this moment. And this is the final run of his career when he's forced to take an early retirement from Amtrak. So it's his last kind of run. The chapters alternate among storylines about a handful of travelers on this train journey, as well as their 1850s ancestors. So to give you some examples, Brianna Flowers has taken out a payday loan to get her son Malik to the Basketball Invitational in Seattle. Her ancestors, George and Cora Flowers, have a tragic love story. Layla Tully, a waitress and descendant of Miwok and Washoe ancestors, is fleeing her abusive white boyfriend. Her ancestor is Luyu Tully, who flees the Methodists who took over her care. Walter's ancestors are twins Nora and Finn, who are separated in 1851 after they come to America from Ireland. And then we have the Chen family, who in the modern day story is economically comfortable. The parents just want a weekend getaway and the preteens don't want to be going with them. They want to be on the screens. But the mother, who's a reformed workaholic named Jenny Chen, is partly responsible for the early retirement that Walter is taking from Amtrak. And her ancestor, Wu Chen, has immigrated to San Francisco from Guangdong and found solidarity in two brothers from the same province. They struck gold, but Wu is haunted by what followed. So we have modern day stories that all weave together. We've got these stories that take place in the 1850s that kind of all weave together. So, Jonathan. 
This is a hefty, hugely ambitious novel that comes in at a whopping 465 pages. Now, for our listeners, don't try this at home, kids. This is something that Jonathan can't get away with. Somebody of Jonathan's caliber and skill can write a novel like this. For the rest of us, we have to stick to those 80,000 words or those 320 pages because most agents and most publishers would look at this and just be like, oh, hell no. So Jonathan, could you tell us how long did this take you to write and what did that process look like for you? Well, Actually, the book was a lot longer. <laughs> it took about, it, surprisingly, it only took about a year, maybe 14 months with uh, when you add in some of the research I did before, and the research just sort of carried on throughout. But uh, I would encourage people to swing for the fences every time. You know, that was the whole, the conceit of this novel was where it was born, actually. It was on the eve of my 50th birthday. I was out here in my garage, and I was like, I had all my blank sheets of poster board set out. And I said, fuck it, I'm going to write the great American novel. And that was the, it was the conceit of the thing that really gave it life. It's like, I want to, I want to tell America's story and I got to put diversity front and center. I've got to cover at least five generations and uh, I've got to make them all track. I wanted to make it as, as, as complex as, as possible, but I wanted it to track seamlessly two seemingly divergent goals there. But uh I didn't ever want to write a book where I have to have like a persona dramatist at the beginning where the reader has to stop and go, now, who is this again? And look at a family tree, because, you know, when a reader has to do that, as you know, as a reader, you lose the reader. And I wanted them to live the story. And, and so for me, the, the the biggest challenge was just to track all of these different characters. I mean, when you described the book, even I was kind of trying to follow along like, well, wait a minute here. You know what I mean? It sounds so convoluted and so so complex, but I think when you read the novel, it tracks pretty fluidly because it's just really based on a sort of a, a kind of a system of connectivity. There's just layers and layers of, of connectivity connecting the characters. And as the reader begins the book, you're just kind of reading one vignette at a time for the first four chapters. And as you go along, it's like you're getting a wider and wider view as the reader makes these connections and you're starting to see a larger and larger picture. The idea for me was I wanted to make it thrilling for the reader in this way. For me, I always like to be uh, conversant with the reader. I like to, the reader to me is like the best tool I have in my belt. You know, I'm doling out this information. I have to be very, very particular and very careful about how I release it and, and being aware of what I give the reader to work with. And I'm holding all the cards. So this allows me uh, the advantage of being able to do things like misdirect or sleight of hand or things like that. Things that are thrilling for the reader. The short answer is it took a little over a year to write and it wrote itself pretty quickly. I had to do more outlining on this book than I have in the past, I think, obviously, just because one of the big challenges of writing a book with 30 main characters is 29 of them or 28 of them are going to be off the page for 40, 50, 60 pages at a time. And I had to develop ways that the reader, I could keep them in the reader's mind. And that that's where connecting them to the other people comes into mind and place comes into mind and circumstance comes into mind and time and chronology and all these other things form this sort of mesh where uh, even when these other characters aren't on, on the page, I, I, I found ways to make the reader aware of them. Yeah, 100%. And there's so much to unpack there. 
Okay, so I'm going to pack things one at a time. So one which I want to discuss is you said in terms of the great American novel, you wanted diversity. And of course, you need that because the point is that all these people were coming to America looking for this dream, a new start, et cetera, et cetera. What was your approach to this, Jonathan? Like, were you saying... I'm going to do this as respectfully as I can. I am paying tribute to these people. Were there ever accusations of appropriation? What was your take on that? And how did you avoid appropriating voices and experiences that were not your own while still writing a novel that was so wonderfully diverse and rich? First of all, I'm kind of way ahead of the arc on this in, in the sense that, you know, this is a pretty recent conversation the last five or six years that it's really come to the forefront. I've been writing outside the purview of my personal experience all along, you know, for 19 books. And I've always, whenever I write outside the purview of my personal experience, I always have a reader or readers in mind that do have an area of expertise or whose experience mirrors the experience of my character closer, just to keep me honest. They call these people sensitivity readers now. I don't even think of it that way. I just know that I can't hit any false notes and I have to get it right. And so I use these readers as a matter of course, just to make sure I'm getting it right. I mean, I've written an Iraqi combat veteran. I have no combat uh, experience, but I have three friends who did tours in Iraq and Afghanistan. So when I write these scenes, scenes involving these characters, I give them to them and and they're merciless. And I ask them to be, and they're like, fuck, this sounds like a Navy federal com commercial. What the fuck's a chew? You know, they write all over the margins. They keep me honest. Because I know as the author, I can't hit a single false note because I know that as a reader, one false note, you can lose me. I mean, that's why things, whenever somebody writes a rock and roll novel or a baseball novel or something that I have a lot of personal experience in, I start seeing these false notes and then I can't trust the narrator anymore. So like, it's a tactical matter for me more than it's more than I'm worried about the blowback. I just have to have trust and confidence that if I do these characters justice, if my writing comes across as genuine and true to the best of my ability, then I'm going to be all right. I think there's some... There's a number of variables at work here that help small world. For instance, say I'm not writing a first person slave narrative or something like that. This book is about the American experiment. And as unsentimental as the book really is about our failed institutions and the failed idea of the American dream, at its core, what I wanted to write about was the one beautiful, well, the one, you know, beneath manifest destiny and, and beneath slavery and beneath a, a lot of these failed institutions that the American experiment was based in. There's this beautiful idea of pluralism, this idea that like people from all over the world come here and possibly what's supposed to be an even playing field, which of course we know it's not. But this idea of celebrating that diversity, first and foremost, is unique in world history. I mean, I mean, you can go back to to the Moors in the 10th century, I guess, in Spain or something like that. But it's a pretty unique idea and one that I still feel is worthy of celebrating for all the the bad things we can say about America. This is, I think, maybe the one great thing that's wrapped at the center of the uh, American experience is pluralism. So I couldn't write about America without putting this diversity front and center. I think the fact that the novel is so egalitarian that I've kind of represented everybody helps. I mean, because I have run into problems and, you know, I've written five or six different tribes of Native Americans. I've written Black characters. I've written Chicano characters. I've written gay characters. I've written, you know, veterans. I've written, I've been very fortunate in my career through these seven or eight published books to have not really experienced that blowback. And I'd like to think that's because I'm executing well. 
And because I'm taking the precaution or the respect of, 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 of having these things vetted to make sure there's no false notes, because as important and vital as I think that the appropriation argument is, it's just as a writer, if I'm supposed to stay in my lane and just write about fat, alcoholic, middle-aged white guys, I'm out. You know what I mean? Because it, that's not why I do this. I do this because uh, writing fiction is wonderful window into empathy and and i'm an empath and so i'm trying to accrue the experience of of the other and by the other i don't just mean people of color or different identity uh persuasions or whatever i mean outside of myself you know the old walk a mile in somebody else's shoes this is the purpose for me i want to try to accrue that experience and and understand it through empathy and so i mean if i was forced to stay in my own lane i, I don't i don't even think i would write novels anymore I use a lot of my own personal experience, but it's usually things like jobs I've worked like, you know, I've written a novel with a caregiver. I've written a novel with a landscaper. I use the experience I've accrued personally, but my subject is often people that are not me. And one thing they have in common is they're generally marginalized people. And so if I want to write about marginalized people, middle-aged white people isn't probably the place to start in America. Yeah, very much so. And I think what the key thing here that you've said is wanting to do it justice. And I think coming to it with the humility is the most important thing because there are authors out there like Lionel Shriver, the 2016 novel, something, The Mandibles. And when an author like this pulls out a sombrero on stage at a huge conference and says, I will write whatever the bloody hell I want to write. And even if I'm getting those characters wrong, and even if I'm stereotyping them, that is when we have this kind of pushback against appropriation, etc. But I think if you come to it with the right intentions, and it's important for you to get it right, because like you say, if you don't, the whole work falls apart. I think that's a key to our listeners of a way of how to approach it. And certainly sensitivity readers are integral. Just coming back to something you said earlier, Jonathan, is you said you wanted to do the five generations of families. Why was it that you had to do the five generations? What was it about that that made you go, okay, 1850s, this is when I'm beginning, and then the modern day story? Well, I mean, in order to really talk about the scope of the American experience, in order to write a book that was going to ask the big questions about whether America's made true on its big promises. This is a this is a nation built on big promises. In order to answer that question, I think you have to take in a large part of the scope. We talk about the immigrants coming to America. It's interesting because when they came into the port of New York to the east, they talked about coming through the Golden Door to the port of New York. This is pre, and of course, this is 1850s, so this is this is pre-Ellis Island. And when people came into the West, into the port of San Francisco from Guangdong and Western China, the people talked about the Golden Mountain because it was the gold rush. And so there's like on both sides, we're dealing with this idea of these golden promises. So, I mean, for me, you had to start there and then then see how how in order to, to, to judge how well we've made good on these promises to look at these people through five generations, you know, five generations later, how did it, sorry about the pun here, but how did it pan out? So yeah, that I, I didn't feel the need to write every generation in between. I like this idea about the two epics being in sort of conversation and having the timeline bifurcated and sort of the rest of that history gets kind of pulled in through these characters that are bifurcated. Just in terms of, okay, so you said only 14 months to write this. The amount of research that must have gone into this must have been astounding. So are you just a history buff and you just knew all of this stuff before you started writing? Or was it a ton of research before those 14 months? Or were you researching while you were writing? What did that part of the process look like? 
I am a history buff and I've written so many novels that there's just there's times in American history and, and certain things that I've I've ended up doing research for for other books. And some of that stuff still rattling around up here in the transom. I'm going to tell you the truth about research, though. I actually kind of deplore it. I hate it. I'm not I mean, I know there's a, some people like to roll their sleeves up, and go to the library and just go. I find it to be sort of agonizing because what happens is it's hard to know when the research just gets in the way of the story you're trying to tell. So over the years, I've gotten really good at researching in terms of efficiency. And most of this happens while I'm writing. I mean, mostly the goal is to make sure everything is credible as I go along. I don't need to read. It's not cheating. It's just working smart, really, I think. I, I just... I need to know what parts of the scene, you know, I can I can go out looking for very specific information and find experts that can answer my questions directly. Whereas I used to maybe go out like when I wrote West of Here, my book about 10 years ago was another huge book. Both of these books are about 170,000 words. They could have easily been 700 pages if the words weren't so small and they didn't squeeze them in there. Publishers trying to keep their price point down. But uh I did it a little differently. I read tons of narratives and I did all these personal interviews and I spent a lot more time in research. I think I learned a lot during that. I learned how to narrow down. Often what I'll do is kind of block out the scene. I know what I need to accomplish with the scene. I know the setting. I know these things. So then I know specifically what I need to know. You know, I have very specific bits of information. Like a lot of people are going to assume I'm a railroad aficionado or an expert on railroads. And I'm, I'm really not. It looks like it on the page. I know exactly everything I needed to know, but I went to experts to find it out because I know what questions to ask them. So as an example, when I'm when I'm researching something, I have to do something in real time. Like in, in the revised fundamentals of caregiving, a baby is delivered by an EMT, not in a hospital environment. I've been in a hospital environment, so I have a pretty good idea how that goes. But I'm not an EMT and I've never seen a baby delivered that way. But I have a friend who is an EMT who has delivered like 18 babies. And so I take him out to a beer and I got the scene sort of blocked out. And I just tell me what needs to happen. What happens next here? Now, I, I'm moving this character from here to here. What 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 do they go for next? He'll say, well, we probably go for the emergency blanket or here, you know, here, you know, maybe he maybe lets the father cut the ligature or what, whatever it takes. I, I go through it. So I'm leaning on resources. Again, it's like the readers. I mean. The writing a big book like this is not all about me in a way. It's kind of collective. I'm writing it for a reader who I need to communicate well enough with that I can use their acumen to make the book better. You know what I mean? To, to sort of lead them and then surprise them and undermine their expectations. And I also need a lot of experts to help me make sure I get it right. Because, I mean, though I do contain multitudes, as we all do, as Whitman said, there's just an endless amount of information out there. So... I've just gotten better at finding out exactly what I need to know and finding the right people to go to. So I do a lot of stuff with when I was doing the Underground Railroad sections or something like that. There's museums in like Galesburg and other places where you can talk to curators and talk to, to people and ask them very specific questions, you know, because especially something that's been covered so much, you want to make sure you get the details right. For this very reason, I would be, say, terrified to write a Civil War novel because there's just so many like armchair experts. And also it's been done so many times. Yeah, absolutely. So for our listeners, in terms of people who wanting to be writing these hugely ambitious novels, I mean, you said come out and just swing for it and just go for it. But was your first novel 
as ambitious as this one? I mean, I haven't read your first novel. Did you start less ambitiously and then become more ambitious as you wrote? Or have you always been to hell with it? I'm just, I'm going big and and I'm hopefully going to do it justice. Well, first of all, nobody's actually read my first three novels because I dug a hole and buried them and literally salted the earth so nothing would ever grow there again, which is more ceremony than they deserve. But I would say, looking back on the very first novel I wrote, it was kind of ambitious. It, it, had, it had five narratives. It was basically, I was 18 years old when I wrote it, and it was sort of loosely based on, I had a friend who was also 18 years old who got arrested for stealing a pack of cigarettes, and uh, he made the mistake of trying to defend himself in court. Misdemeanor crime, steal some cigarettes, you figure 200 hours of community service or something. Well, he made the um, mistake of trying to defend himself in court. And his argument, which on the surface seems like, okay, I see what you're doing, was that he used to have a problem with stealing as a juvenile, but he's broken that. And this is the first time he's trying to show how he'd already reformed, but it's like, ah, doesn't he realize that once you're not a juvenile anymore, that record gets wiped out. So he should have never brought it in. So that looked to the judge like it was a pattern. So the kid got like two months in jail county jail for stealing a pack of cigarettes, which was a pretty harsh sentence. So I was getting like weekly missives back and forth from him. And he was my roommate. I was sending him books and talking to him on the phone when he could. And uh, I started writing this jail narrative, which was just sort of the first part of the book started in inside the jail, life inside the jail. And then the second part of the book was following these guys as they were sprung into their life. So it was kind of an ambitious concept because there was like five characters then what happened was the novel just sort of, it just, it just went, by the time it was over, it was about an 18 year old guy trying to finish his first novel. It started out promising, but it was no good. Buried that one, wrote another one, buried that one, wrote another one, buried that one. Sometimes my narratives are uh, very intimate and not quite so ambitious. Usually they tend towards ambition. I mean, I think the important thing, I think really important, I want to play in a high stakes game. You know what I mean? So I want to risk falling flat on my face whenever I'm writing. It's just like, I mean, I grew up as an athlete and I don't really want to play in a game where I'm blowing somebody out a basketball game where, you know, we beat somebody 128 to 81. That's just not very fun. I'd rather, I'd rather have that ball with two seconds left on the clock in a tie game. I want to play in a high stakes game. And so, and I want to develop tools and the best way to develop new tools is to try something you haven't tried yet. And I encourage this for all young writers. You will fail. Uh, and that's kind of the point, you know, I'm still finding ways to fail. I mean, I, I've since I started publishing, I still have two novels that aren't published, two novels I've finished and, and I have a good sales track and I win awards and you'd think it would be pretty much turnkey, but you know, I'm still finding new ways to fail. And a lot of that is attached to not being safe trying to push yourself. And I mean, that's the only way you get better at anything. I would understand not to to try to bite off too much as a piece of advice, but actually I say bite off everything you can and just figure it out as you go along. I mean, of course you're going to risk failing, but you're going to learn an awful lot. I used to write myself into a lot of corners I no longer write myself into, but the only way I learned not to write myself into those corners was by writing myself into those corners. So, I mean, I think the bottom line is you just gotta is just write just work don't i mean a lot of people are so careful i noticed that it's about a lot of young writers that they just and i, I get why it's this way everyone kind of is so concerned about occupying the space of writer they want to get an agent they want to be published most people are trying much too soon i think unfortunately that's a tough pill to swallow but they want to be a writer so much and that's part of it too is wanting it but but the truth is is like 
like anything else, it's like that Malcolm Gladwell 10,000 hours thing, you know, I mean, you just got to do something a lot to, to develop the facility to be really good at it. And so that's what I encourage to, people to do not, you know, people try to polish this first chapter to the point of, you know, because they want to query an agent and it's like the first chapter is good. But the truth is like the process always changes for me. It's never quite the same each time. But one thing that's always the same is the last thing I do when I finish a novel is go back and rewrite the first chapter. Okay. So it doesn't really make a lot of sense to just sit there and not move on. Some mid 20th century novelist, maybe it was Hemingway, maybe it was Fitzgerald. I don't remember who, maybe it was Das Paso. Somebody, somebody had said that basically the first hundred pages of a novel is usually pretty useless. And there is some truth to that. I mean, depending on how you work as well, all these novels in, this isn't as much of the case, but with the early novels, for sure, you're writing and discovering at the same time. You're composing this book and you're discovering stuff about characters and you're making these revelations and you're putting it all out on the page and you're blocking out these scenes. But what you don't realize when you're kind of new to this is that a lot of this information is misplaced. You're making revelations about your character that really belong midway through the second act, but you're putting them here because this is when you're discovering them. And when you do that, you're robbing the reader of the experience and you're robbing your narrative of momentum and it doesn't have the nice natural arc and rising stakes and rising action. So like, I really think you just got to try to keep moving forward, at least past the early chapters, because that's when you're going to make the discoveries where, ha, now I really know what I'm doing here. Now I have to go back and reverse engineer or throw away everything I wrote before it and do this right. I think this is what I mean about always, like for me, it's like a dance with the reader where the reader's doing everything I'm doing backwards and heels. By keeping myself honest, by thinking of the reader, and by the reader, I'm not saying like the, you know, 30 to 65 year old college educated woman that's my demographic or anything like that. I just mean me on the other side. I know the kind of book I want to read and I know what, what thrills me as a reader. So I always think about the reader because otherwise as the writer, we have all the cards. We have all the information. It's very easy for us to leave information, vital information out because we've already intuited it or internalized it. And we know it, but we have to keep ourselves honest about what little crumbs that we give the reader at every level, because that's the thrill of it. You know what I mean? Is undermining the reader's expectation. And so some of the things I love, and you see them in small world writ large, are convergences. I love when divergent characters converge and, and the writer develops this sense after a while that these these characters are destined to meet somehow. I just know, I don't know how, I don't know when, but I know it's going to be thrilling when it finally happens because you're building this sort of anticipation all along. All of these effects that you're trying to create for the reader that make a great story, that make great storytelling, all of them require that you remember exactly and keep very careful track of what you are letting the reader know. And this doesn't mean you can't be manipulative or deceptive. I mean, we just talked about using misdirect and stuff like that, but you can't use something like misdirect until you know exactly how you're misdirecting, how you're leading the reader this way. And at the same time, planting the information that when you pull that rug out from under them, they're like, oh yeah, because the other part of it is there too. So, so much of good storytelling is like the dispensation of information, purely information. I mean, I'm not saying the sentences aren't important and the prose aren't important, and but really what's important is this relationship between the reader and the writer. You're giving them a ride. I mean, whether your motive is to just entertain them or it's to edify them or persuade them, whatever your motive is, 
all of this requires that you know exactly what you're giving them at in, any given time. I mean, writing a novel is like a, writing a persuasive argument or a joke. I mean, in a way, like, like to write a good ending. You know, a punchline works because we laugh because it surprises us that, but then like on a moment's reflection, it's inevitable because it's so true. That's what a good ending does. You know what I mean? So again, you, it's like, you got to read the audience. If you're talking about a comedian, that means reading the audience. When you're talking about a writer, that means just knowing, knowing what the, what, what you're giving the reader and how you can use that to your advantage, because, you know, it is a dance, but you're still leading, right? Amazing, Jonathan. Well, we're at the end of our time. Thank you so, so much for joining us. Carmela, thank you so much for suggesting, Jonathan. And for our listeners at Small World, Jonathan Everson, we're putting it up on our bookshop.org affiliate page so that you can go and get it there, support an indie at the same time as supporting the podcast. Thanks so much, Jonathan. Hi everyone, it's Cece here. I'm stopping by to let you know about my upcoming webinar. It's called From Memories to Memoir, Turning Your Life Story into a Book. And as you can probably guess from the title, it's all about the memoir genre. Join me on October 6th at 8 p.m. via Zoom to learn about things like the importance of a strong hook in a memoir, examples of memoirs that are being sold right now, and the biggest challenges in writing memoirs, and how you can turn them into successes. So whether you've completed your memoir or you're just thinking about writing one, I invite you to join me. For information on how to register, please head over to my Instagram or Twitter page, click on the link in my bio, and follow the instructions. And don't worry, if you're busy on October 6th, the class will be recorded and a recording will be sent to everyone who is registered 24 hours later. I hope to see you there. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10am to 5pm Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on.